It's Yolakali. What's up? The following program was brought to you by Yolakali. Keeping it weird since 1997. Oh. Who's that? Who are you? You're not allowed to be in here. Hey, yo, somebody get their grandma. Huh? Ah! Now nah, you gotta do it like this. What's Up is back with another two hours of fully youth-produced content, tapping into the matters and concerns of youth in Chicago. As well as all the crazy, wacky, tea-sipping, gossip-spilling, weird shenanigans that we, youth, get up to. Listen to your own risk, because your mind might explode. The chances are low, but never zero. So strap in, and let's get into the show! College 101, a first-gen guide. Hey everyone, welcome to College 101, a first-gen guide. My name is Melissa and this is a segment where we talk about first-generation students' experiences in college. Our goal is to, if there's any common experiences first-generational students go through, and how we can uplift first-generation students in higher institutions. Tune in, we will be having interviews with, obviously, first-generation students, either currently in college or already graduates. Before we go on to our interview, I just wanted to talk about more what the show is about, and especially, like, so I am also a first-generation student currently going on to my second year so I don't really have like heavy heavy experience I feel like that one year of like going into like a higher institution really just made me kind of think differently at least like how my experience compares to other people especially because I had kind of like a form of culture shock but it definitely like makes you kind of aware of it like being in a classroom with like a lot of people who are very different from you so a lot of them their parents are professors or their parents already have like a college college degree so I feel like maybe that experience might be easier for like another college student who kind of has that sort of um, support group that being their parents or like any other people that kind of have navigating through like university have already their degrees so it gets definitely like an easier experience but I obviously like it's a case-by-case basis but I feel especially for a lot of people who are barely entering college like them being like the first ones in their family I feel like one there's a lot of pressure for like I guess success just because like you're kind of different from like your family members in that sense but I also feel like you're very lost at the same time I'll talk about like I guess my application process because I feel like it doesn't really start once you enter college or like university I feel like even beforehand so obviously like my senior year I was applying to school um first of all I didn't know what I was doing I kind of had to research everything so like going on to that like when I applied to college obviously I did all my essays I filled out all my forms a lot of like private institutions a lot of private colleges they like require you to fill out like another like financial form which for me was super confusing I remember like being extremely stressed about it but I also like am thankful for this experience just because I feel like when I was also learning it I can also help others in that way like I've had like friends who I've had in common who are either like who had like the same questions as me 
I was like also able to kind of help him. So it made me feel like kind of good in that sense. But obviously it's like a very, I, I guess it's a stressful experience just because like at least when I was going through it, like I couldn't really explain it to my parents because they couldn't really understand it. Obviously they try to like sympathize with me, but it, it wasn't too deep. And so when I was admitted to the university I'm enrolled in, like a type of PWI, like as a person of color, especially if you're first generation. Um, like a lot of people are very tone deaf about your experiences or or just like the way of living, or I guess. So in a way, it feels marginalizing, but like I could also kind of compare the pros and cons of it. One, at least for me, like you're meeting new people. So I don't really seem to mind that. You learn about new people. You learn about either if they have like similar things as you or anything. So it's just like, it's fun to get to know people you know obviously but there's also a con like a lot of people either are very tone deaf they don't understand it or or I don't know they just some people obviously that just depends if you're like if you were raised well or something like a lot of people just ask really out-of-pocket questions and you're kind of like oh I just don't want to explain it to you or I don't know it just feels very uncomfortable but like over the topic of like first generations like students like I think it's also essential to have like kind of help so when like a person who's in the, who's the first person in their family to to enroll in college, like they're not also like discouraged about it, like as you know how the common thing about imposter syndrome and how a lot of first generation students don't really feel like they belong in either the college they're in or anything. Um, obviously, like it goes for everyone. I don't think it necessarily means like it's like specifically like a first gen experience. But I also feel like that happens a lot for first generation students, at least like in my part, I did experience that. And I like at some points like you are going to experience that. I don't think the feeling is ever going to go away in that sense. Like sometimes you you think you don't belong in that place or I just remember being like very intimidated in some classes just either because I couldn't really like comprehend some of the logistics in it. So I'm like thinking also about like, oh, they made a mistake with my acceptance letter or anything like. I think they're playing with me. I don't think I really got accepted to there. But it's a matter of like your confidence. Like you need to believe in yourself. Kind of like, yeah, you got in like obviously. And if you're still there, then then obviously you're doing good, you know. But like talking about like first generation students experience, like I feel like if you come from a, like, like a lower income neighborhood, if you're low income yourself, if either you're a person of color, then there's a lot of, I guess, difficulties in like your confidence in enrolling in college. The way it's communicated, like, oh, like, it's not, like, you know, college degrees aren't really for, like, those people. You're not, It's not for you, you know. But obviously, like, I think it's important by establishing support and, and, like, uplifting a lot of people. You're able to, you're able to kind of break these stigmas where, like, it, where college or, like, I, I guess an education is only catered for a certain like type of people so especially like having support in either your schools like starting from high school to even a college I feel like it's very important just because you're kind of keep maintaining like a trend as well like you're uplifting more people to enroll in college and kind of break the stigma of like having a certain type of person and who's only fit for like higher education and to transition kind of more into our interview topic I interviewed a undergraduate student um, named Genesis where she is a part of a chapter organization where they help uplift first generation low-income students and I feel like it was a very I feel like it was a good conversation Um, it gave me like you know the whole point of this kind of segment is to get perspectives on first generation students especially like how either if there's similarities but without further ado let's listen 
So my name is Genesis Velasco. Um, I'm from Atlanta, Georgia. I go to BU and I'm a health science major. Let's talk about like maybe your first experience once you entered like college, like when you entered it, how was your experience? Like was it any type of culture shock? It was definitely a huge shock like on all levels because I started school on September 2020. So we were still like in the pandemic. So I felt like it was a lot more isolating than freshman year should usually be. And I'm also like from Atlanta. So I was always around like people of color. And then when I got to Boston, it was a predominantly white, you know, like institution. So I was around a lot of people, like white people that I've never been around before. And there were a lot of like class differences that I didn't realize existed as much because in my community, everyone was like lower class or like lower middle class. But at BU, there was like a really wide range of like rich people with money that I didn't didn't even know people had. And people whose like parents were doctors and lawyers, parents all graduated from Harvard. And I'm like, my parents just barely, you know, made it through high school. So that was like really weird. And like, I don't know, just navigating academia because I didn't realize, I don't know, sometimes I felt like other people knew things that like I didn't know. And there was a lot of terminology that like, professors would use that they automatically assumed that you knew. Like they were talking about a syllabus and I'm like, okay, what is that? Or like in my freshman writing class, they would, they expected you to already have read certain like books and stuff and I'm like well my school couldn't afford those books all our or all our books were like torn up and stuff so I don't know I just felt like everyone else had like a head start on things that like I didn't have a head start on and it was really hard to click with people when it came to like hanging out on weekends or something because there would be some people who would hang out like we'd go out every single weekend we'd spend 30 plus dollars on food and I'm like I am on work study I need this money to like pay for school or to pay to like help my parents and stuff. So I didn't have like that disposable income that a lot of people had. So it was really hard, like socially on top of the pandemic. And it was like hard to click with people who didn't like share my same identity. What are like some struggles you think like first gen students encounter like in comparison to like non first gen students? I think the biggest one has to be like imposter syndrome. Because when you see people that have like all of these achievements and whose like parents or siblings have had all of these achievements, like sometimes you're like wait how are we in the same space or like when that you feel like they know more than you or they're more well networked than you you're like I don't deserve to be here like everyone else is like so much better than me and I don't know what's going on so I feel like I like I'm a junior I'm gonna be a rising junior and I still like experience that now even though like I'm like oh we all like made it to the same place and I, I deserve to be here but it's sometimes it's like really hard when you see like how accomplished and well-networked people are and speaking about network I feel like that's a big struggle that first-gen students have because a lot of times um with our parents like professions it's not really a job where you well-networked with their network whereas people whose like parents are like doctors and lawyers and if you want to be a doctor or a lawyer you just hit up like your parents friend but like my mom does hair my dad did like construction and stuff so I'm not gonna ask a construction worker how I can apply to graduate school you know so I feel like it already puts us behind because in today's society, it's a lot about like who you know, not what you know. So I feel like that puts us behind a lot. Um, and then finances too. I feel like a lot of first-gen students literally have so much potential, but then the financial barriers of getting there stop a lot of people from really, like fulfilling their true potential. Like it's even something as small as like textbooks or like lab supplies, or I don't know, like some people like um, professional attire to go to like interviews or something, or to do like summer programs, or sometimes if there's like a position that you really want that'll give you like the job experience that you need but it isn't paying you at all or not as much as a job in a field like totally unrelated to what you want to do 
a lot of times we have no choice but to take the job that's like higher paying because we have like bills or we like help out our family and stuff stuff like that puts us behind too going i guess into that conversation about like how there's not much like opportunity or support being a christian do you feel like your institution or your college provides that opportunity I think they're definitely working on it and throughout my time being at VU I've noticed it get significantly better but it's still definitely not where it needs to be. I feel like VU like every other institution does this thing where they like to in their like the press they like to say like oh a quarter of our students are first gen or these are all a minority students but they don't like they like bringing us in but once we get here they don't really like helping us out. So when I started school in September in the fall we didn't have the Newberry Center, which is the first gen center on campus, but I did have uh, our first year one-on-one class for first gen students, which is kind of just like a class to help freshmen navigate college. And it was centered around first gen students. So everyone in my class was first gen, so that was cool. But um, with the Newberry Center, they, they definitely have, it's, it's a big deal having like a physical space because there's more like awareness and visibility on campus. And um, the director, she's like super great about like meeting with students and helping us with like all the needs that we have. But in terms of like institutional change, there really isn't a lot going on. And a lot of times the institution or professors, like if we ever have an issue, they're just like, go to the Newberry Center, go to the Newberry Center. So instead of like them fixing things themselves or them making changes, they're like, not just go to like the first gen center. And I'm like, it's great that we have the center, but you can't fix every problem with the first gen center. But I do feel like more awareness is being brought to like what first gen, like low income students experience and how we are different than like regular students and what like the support that we need. So I feel like it is getting better, but there's still like a lot of work that needs to be done before first gen students can really, I don't know, like have the same opportunities and be at a level playing field with other students. Are you a part of like any organizations or programs that support first-gen students? Yeah, so um, I've been a part of the executive board of BU's First Generation Low Income Partnership. I started off as an underclassman representative, then a secretary, and now this coming year I'm the president. Um, so it's been really exciting to see our club grow um, because in the beginning we were we started our first year during the pandemic, so it was hard to get people to like show up, especially because of Zoom. But now, as like the first gen identity has become more and more like visible on campus, we have had a lot more engagement. So it's been really nice. And I mentioned the first year 101 class for first gen students. This past fall, I was a peer mentor for that class. So I had like a really big role in being able to set the curriculum for that class and meet with all of the first gen students there and help connect them with resources to help them be successful, especially since I had just gone through like what they went through. And sometimes it's different asking like a faculty or staff member for advice or like to talk about what's going on versus someone who's your own age. So I thought that was like really good opportunity to be able to like directly engage with first gen students. What are some things you wish there were supported in order to support first generation students? Without being first gen freshman year and like starting college is a lot. And I feel like there's a lot that people don't know on top of being first gen. I feel like that just makes it significantly like more scary and a lot worse. So I feel like universities need to do a lot more with, I don't know, just informing like especially first gen students before they get on campus. Of You, you ever hear about like, those unspoken rules or like things that just people need to know before getting to campus. I feel like that could make the transition a lot smoother and making sure that you establish that network of first-gen students before classes start. So it's not as like difficult to be able to navigate that. I feel like mentorship is really, really important and it was helpful for me when I started school. 
So connecting students more to like peer mentor groups or something like that, I feel like could be more helpful. Financial support is also like a big thing because I've noticed some professors will have like $200 textbooks that they say are mandatory and it has to be like the newest edition or like they wrote the book and they want you to buy the book when you could get an older edition for like significantly less or they say you need the book and you end up never using it. So I feel like small things like that are ways, you know, that you could help mitigate a lot of things. I feel like in terms of post-grad, I think like starting junior year or even senior year, institutions need to work more with first-gen students on securing jobs or helping them apply to graduate school. So applying to undergrad and grad school are two like very different things. And I know most of us struggle to do it the first time. And there's a lot of like financial things like, oh, how old do I have to be to still like put my parents on my FAFSA or like when can I stop putting them on there? Or how do loans work and all of that stuff? I feel like there's just a lot that's like super different about post-grad, post-undergrad that people don't talk to like first-gen it's about so a lot more like networking job skills interview skills soft skills and like learning how to be like financially set on your own like getting an apartment and stuff because a lot of us come from low-income backgrounds so like my parents never had a job where they had health insurance so I'm like okay how do I you know like negotiate in my job like whether I need health insurance or like what health insurance should I get or how do you you know just those things those life things that you never really learn about when you come from like a first gen or low income background so I feel like those things could really help first gen students you know like do better be more successful if they receive that type of support and I guess in in general have you like experienced like any sort of microaggressions because you're either low income or like first generation yeah and it's crazy because people don't like think about the effects of like what they do like for instance I have like on my work study which is like you know you have to have the lowest earned income to be able to qualify for it and I've been around a lot of like high income people that are like oh you're on work study you like you get Pell Grant like they look down on you for being low income or my favorite question used to be when people would ask like oh what do your parents do for a living because back home that wasn't like a big deal question but here when everyone's talking about their parents and these fancy jobs and I'm like oh my mom does hair my dad did construction they all like look at like they look down on you and because a lot of those people like have never encountered first gen or like low-income students they don't know how to act those have been like some of the experiences and then some things that they're not necessarily a microaggression but like when people have really well-educated parents and they're like oh why don't you send your essay to your parents to read over or just stuff like that I'm like bestie my parents don't speak English so you know what I mean it's just it's just things like that it's not necessarily a microaggression like it's unintentional I guess but it's just like when people don't know about like your first gen low-income status they say things and I'm like well I don't really have access to that or I really like can't do that or like with going out they're like oh ask your parents for money or I'm like, no, I can't do that. That's why I have three jobs. Or like they ask, why do you have so many jobs? Or like, why do you never have free time? And I'm like, because I need the money because my parents won't provide that for me. So for some people, it's like ignorance. But then for other people, it's really like microaggressions that are like really harmful and like make a lot of first-gen low-income students feel bad. And I feel like sometimes that's what makes it so difficult to be able to click with people that don't share your same like identity. Yeah. And I guess just to kind of wrap up everything, like what are some things you would tell first-generation students either in your university or other like PWI universities? Don't be afraid of asking for help. I feel like I know it's such an overused like piece of advice, but it's something that a lot of first-gen students don't don't do 
because a lot of us, I feel like we were the person that people went to for help and then having to start over and having to start asking for help, especially when it's in the, when you're in like the lower position, like where you're asking for help and you're like, I don't really know what's going on. I don't have the funds. I don't have the knowledge. A lot of times it takes a lot for us to be able to ask for help. But, you know, tuition I've used like 40, 50K. So I'm like, we pay money or somebody's paying money for us to get like use these resources like we need to seek them out as much as possible because that's why they're there and I feel like getting a mentor or like some type of trusted faculty member and student is super important because faculty members like they can jump over hoops that students can't and like they've been here a long time they're like well connected if you don't have a network then get with someone that like does have a network and I feel like that's so important to be able to like just reach the resources that you need because a lot of times there are resources that like you never knew about or that aren't like publicized but you'd be surprised like how people can help you and I would also suggest just finding like that first gen community on campus because sometimes it can be so exhausting to like put up a front around like non-first gen low-income students and sometimes like you just need a space where you're like yeah, I'm poor, or like, yeah, it's been a hard day, or like, you know, you could just talk about your struggles without having to, like, censor it to make people not feel bad, because, you know, like, when you talk about things with people that aren't first general income, like, they'll feel bad, or you can't really express how bad it is, because then they'll freak out. It's, it's really nice to just have a space and a group of people who understand everything, so you're, like, no filter, like, you can say it how it is, and it's totally fine, because everyone else has experienced the same thing. I feel like that's like super relieving and it's like super important in like your social life, especially at a like elite, private, non-Philly white school. And we're back. I hope you enjoyed this interview. This was Genesis and she talked about her experience of being a first generation low income student and how also as a role as president, how it also and how she hopes to uplift other first generation voices. Before we end this segment, I just wanted to talk about like other resources I guess first generation students could get and I feel like not necessarily like you know concrete things but I also feel like so like my recommendations if for if you're entering like a higher education that being community college or like just university like definitely I think you should reach out so I think have a meeting with either your academic advisors reach out to other people who are first generation as well also like a lot of colleges have certain clubs for you know I guess certain type of people like if you're a first generation student there is I'm pretty sure there will be a club like there to kind of uplift you that either being like in our like a national like chapter group or just something that is made in your university I definitely recommend like researching that first um kind of create kind of a network between people um just you know because it's essential to kind of have like a support group like especially if you feel like you're very isolated um you know it's also fun and you'll kind of distract yourself you it's I don't know but yeah like if say for example like if you're like a person of color there's like probably like a black student union in your college and also like either like like a club like made for Hispanic or Spanish-speaking students then I think obviously like you should join another thing I recommend also like before you even go to college like obviously apply for a lot of scholarships there's a lot of scholarships catered for you I could also like for, for example like I think a really good one here in Chicago that I feel like it's pretty decent and I can like kind of so there's like a lot of like Fiesta del Sol scholarships that are they're catered for first generation students or like who are students who are Spanish speaking um the Pullman scholarship is also a really good one and it's like a pretty good amount of money 
and that one is for kind of first generation students low income students like you kind of have to meet a certain income bracket and so like i like if you're in if you're in those categories i strongly recommend you to apply also like if you're currently in college there's a lot of there's still a lot of like i guess scholarships that your institution either provides that either your college provides or like any external ones so i definitely recommend like people applying to that i feel like if you're a for, if you're obviously like a low income student then that's going to help you and another thing is like i think personally i don't i feel like you shouldn't be afraid to reach out if you're having problems if you're having problems like either in your certain courses or anything like it's very important to reach out and admit that you need help like i like like you know give your pride a rest and kind of ask for help you're it's it's the reason that you're going to probably like better yourself and understand something understand something as well that you know that could also apply to other aspects of like your college experience and i feel like also breaking the stigma of like i guess i guess i know some people who are kind of ashamed to admit that they're either first generation students and i kind of and i think like breaking that stigma and kind of and you know in a sense kind of embracing that part of you can also help like combat any sort of like negative connotations with that which I don't know why do you would think that negative connotations like maybe you have a problem with yourself but yeah I feel like that is super essential especially to talk about I really hope you enjoyed this segment so that's kind of wrapping up everything be sure to check out like other segment parts in the series because there is a lot more I guess I hope you enjoyed this interview because I felt like it was very good but yeah you are listening to college 101 a first-gen guide and I was your host Melissa college 101 a first gen guide hey everyone welcome to college 101 a first gen guide my name is melissa and this is a segment where we talk about first generation students experiences in college Our goal is to, if there's any common experiences first-generational students go through and how we can uplift first-generation students in higher institutions. Tune in, we will be having interviews with, obviously, first-generation students either currently in college or already graduates. We have a very special interview. It's also pretty lengthy, but, you know, that's okay. It's pretty fun. With a already college graduate. Her name is Cynthia, and she recently graduated, I believe, this year. I, We know we sat down with her, and we kind of talked to her about her experience being a first-generation student, especially, like, at a very, like, PWI-type um, college, and how it kind of compares to other first-generation students. We also asked her if she had any recommendations, if she had any advice for other first-generation students. So without further ado, let's listen. My name is Cynthia Salgado. I attended Coe College in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, which is about 20 to 30 minutes from the University of Iowa. And I double majored in communication studies in Spanish. And I am born and raised in Chicago. So my first question would be, how is your experience applying to college as a first-gen student? So like when you were in high school? I just remember the process being very hard. What is it called? Verification. When you get like the little star, like when you're applying to college. Oh, okay. Yeah. Like, yeah, I get you. Yeah. So since my parents were going through a divorce and all the legal papers were changing i kept getting chosen for verification and that's the one thing i remember is being in the office at school and just crying to everyone 
because I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know how to navigate like all the different portals or that one portal that we all use for like, there's one portal that all schools or most schools use. I didn't know what I was doing. I was the first one on top, like add the divorce and add all the legal paperwork. And now I'm getting questioned because of the legal paperwork. So it was like, I don't know. I just remember crying a lot. Going on to the next one, like, did you receive any help from your family or school when you were applying? I received mainly help from school. My cousin did help me when it came to loans and navigating the system online. Besides that, most of my family couldn't help. And school-wise, I guess my story with school is, I don't know if rare or different, but I was part of Gear Up, I was part of Upward Bound, and I was part of Chicago Scholars. When I went to my counselor, with questions. They told me, you have all these other programs. I have all these other kids to help. You should be fine. I had to go out and get help by myself, for myself. Whether that was going and bugging everyone from Gear Up or Upward Bound or always texting my mentors from Chicago Scholars, I had to learn how to advocate for myself because my school itself wasn't necessarily helping. My other question would be like when you were finally deciding on what college to attend, like how did you base off your decision? There was a lot of factors that went into me choosing my school. Seeing the high school that I came from, I knew I wanted a small school. And I've talked to other people and it sounds like sometimes people just choose schools to choose schools. But I knew that the environment that I worked best in was a, a small environment. So I think Co is, their ratio is about one to 16. One of my biggest classes was probably 20 students and that was a gen ed. Normal class sizes for us were 12 students. I think the smallest class I had was six to seven. Another one, obviously, Price. I ended up at a private liberal arts institution. Private schools tend to give you a lot of money. You know, they gave me a nice amount of money. There's something called appeal letters. If people don't know, you get your financial aid package and you can tell them, hey, I really want to attend your school, but I'm missing X amount of dollars. Do you think there's a way for you to give me that money? That's what I ended up doing with my top two schools. And Cole pulled through and gave me the money that I was asking for. But, okay, and so the next question would be, when you entered college for, like, the first time, how was your experience? Like, how was your first day in class? I think one of the biggest things I remember is really facing the meaning of a PWI, which is a predominantly white institution. I knew where I was going. I knew the state I was taking, a literal state. And state as in the environment of a PWI. I met other friends afterwards and they talked about I didn't think it was going to be this white. I didn't think I would be the only Latina in a room. Statistically speaking when you look at the school it is like that. It's a PWI for a reason. It was founded in the 1800s as an all-white male Presbyterian college. But I, I remember just being there and telling myself, okay, this is what it's going to be like. I'm going to be the only brown person in the room, but there are people around me, whether that's peers, whether that's other programs at school that are willing to help me. Because unlike others, thanks to other programs in high school, again, whether that be Garab, Upward Bound, Chicago Scholars, I knew how to coexist with other people. So while other people were telling me, I've never dealt with this many white people, to me it was like, well, that's like, 
that's normal. We get out of the city or we get out of the neighborhood. We go toward the city. There's not as many Mexicans over there as there is here. But then I had to realize I have a very different experience being in those programs and being from a big city like Chicago. So it, it was the struggle of being a person of color as a PWI and then being alone, which I loved. I don't know how I'm going to do it when I, now that I'm back home, but I've been alone for the past four years and I loved it. But also it was scary. But I do remember telling myself like if I could get past this first week if I could get past this first semester then I'm set because retention is not the greatest a lot of people are gone by Thanksgiving break or they finish off the semester and you never see that in your opinion like what are some of the struggles first-gen students encounter compared to other non-first-gen students because we are first generation, we don't have the privilege of having family members with knowledge that could help us. Fall 2021, I was in D.C. and one of my roommates, it was time to register for classes and her mom called her and said, hey, I looked at the catalog. It looks like you're missing this class and this class. And then I saw this class was available. And that could benefit you because you're major. And, but I just remember hearing that and saying, holy crap, is that what it's like to have family that knows what college is, what it takes to like have to choose your classes, have to, I was in a whole different time zone. I had to wake up at a different time because I'm in DC, my college is in Iowa. I still need to register for classes. And FAFSA, there's people, there, there's a lot of people that I've met I say, oh, well, um, I don't even know my FAFSA user ID or anything because my parents always do it. I had to have two emails so I could do my FAFSA because my parents don't know what the hell FAFSA is. Because we're getting divorced at the time. My parents just don't know how to use technology. Mind blown. Or understanding the fact that if I call home and I tell you I'm tired, I'm tired. I understand I'm going to school. I may not be working, but it is tiring being in school. That workload, plus if you have work study, I did work study all four years, but I was also involved in an insane amount of clubs, plus school. You know, if like if we tell our family members, I'm, I'm just tired or I'm stressed, that our stress is just as valid as theirs with them working and us studying. I guess family just understanding higher education culture that obviously they don't understand because as first generation, we're usually the first one. So we have to set that example. But that understanding and that kind of compassion, like I, I don't want you to pity me, but at least tell me like, yeah, you know, I can see why you're stressed. Make sure you wind down this weekend and, you know, do something that you enjoy. Like, I hear that from my therapist, but it would be nice to also hear that, you know, like from my family. We're going in blindfolded and had all that stress of being the first ones on our shoulders. I think that's another thing that people don't see is there's so many expectations. I know for some people, them going to college, it's like you are carrying your parents' American dream. You're the one that made it to the higher education. You're the one who was born in the U.S., you're the first one. You're going into a place you don't even know, doing things you don't even know how to navigate. Plus, coming if you are coming from an immigrant family, you add that on top. And I, 
you know, I think those are a lot of things that other people or don't have to deal with or have never thought of. I talked to my roommate this last semester. I forgot what the conversation was about. And I, I told her, like, I am a woman of color. It is very, there's so many struggles that you don't see or that you don't have to face. People say your name and they say it correctly. People attempt my name and then they give up. You know, that typical like Instagram saying of, if you could say charcuterie, you could say my name. Yeah, if you could say charcuterie, you can say salgado. So many struggles, assimilation, you know, trying to fit in, feeling like you're the oddball out. If you're coming from a predominantly minority community, into a PWI like I was, that's culture shock too. I didn't know what the hell a casserole was until like a year ago. The job market at that after graduation is like, if you do not network, if you do not make connections through your family, through your friends, you're by yourself, which a lot of people, if their family doesn't already have prior connections, then that's even harder. Make those connections. If you don't maintain those connections, that is even harder. You know, I've been privileged to have to learn networking. I feel like through all the programs that I was in in high school, they really engrave like you need to network. But some people don't, they don't learn that either. You know, now we're freshly graduated and they're like, who do I ask for help? I don't know anyone in my field. I always had to remind myself of these institutions weren't built for us. And I think you know that. I think you've done enough research and enough. These institutions weren't built for people like me. One, I'm brown. Two, I'm a woman. I look around and I'm one of a couple, but now I'm here. And now I need to do everything in my power to get through and make sure that it's easier for everyone after me. You know, I have a 16-year-old nephew and he went to see the school and I was telling him, hey, in the next year or so, you're going to have to start looking at this, this, and this. Now I have that knowledge. Now I can pass that down. I'm thankful for that. Now he has that, but I didn't have that. I have a six-year-old nephew. I'm constantly telling him like, oh, you like this? You could go to school for that. Or you don't like that? You like this other subject? You could go to school for that. And not shying away from the arts. You feel like, you are, I'm carrying my parents' dream. I'm carrying what my family fought for. And I need to make sure that I achieve something. I majored in communication studies. To this day, my family will tell me, and what is that? And what are you going to do with that? Because I'm not a teacher. I'm not a lawyer. I'm not a doctor. I'm not what they believe is going to make those big bucks, you know? And with my nephews, I'm kind of, I don't really like that stigma. I've always been a fan of the arts. If I'm passionate about something, then why not make it my career? You know, I feel like our parents are, is they're used to, oh, we're crossing the border, we're doing this, and our kids are going to be doctors, or they're going to be lawyers. And it's those big name careers that now, for me, it's kind of like, okay, so what's your job? But what are you going to do with that? But why did you spend four years doing that? Like, you couldn't have chosen something else. Again, their understanding of higher education and careers. So the next question would be like, do you feel there's any support in your college or institution for being like Christian? I would say yes. There's a lot of people that would say no. As I mentioned, I had to advocate for myself through high school. I went in and I said, okay, the first thing I need to figure out is, is there anything like Europe? Is there anything like Upward Bound? Which Upward Bound is from TRIO. Do they have TRIO? Is there any Chicago scholars at this college? There was a scholar who ended up being one of my good friends. They did have TRIO. Found a TRIO office, found the person who was assigned to me, and I said, okay, this is where I come from. 
this is what I need. I actively looked for that. There's another program that's called College Possible. Honestly, my mentor from College Possible is most likely the reason I made it through my first two years of college. That was being homesick, that I was sick all the time. I, I have the worst immune system you can think of. I was in and out of urgent care. The pandemic, you know, that was my second year of college. Learning how to email professors, how to talk to professors, how to advocate for myself in class, where to find things, other resources. She taught me all of that because I went out and I looked for it. College Possible tends to people who are, I believe, come from a low-income background, are minorities, if they qualify through FAFSA. There's a lot of things that they can cover. And they're usually at school events. But if you don't go out to events, if you don't talk to people, you're not going to know they're there. There's probably two people who ended up getting their mentors because I told them, hey, I'm pretty sure you qualify. I knew what I needed in order to succeed. And that was, I didn't need someone holding my hand, but I just needed someone besides the institution. Because if I were to not have college possible or Sometimes I did go check in with my trio mentor, not as much as college possible. She would only see me when I'd run into her office and be like, hey, I'm going to drop out. I'm either going to drop out or I'm going to have an existential crisis and my mental health is like, she would just see me literally at my worst (laughs) because I was running in the office telling her I'm dropping out, I'm ready to go home, that's it. You know, and she'd be like, nope, sit down, we're talking about this. But if it were not for me, seeking that out, I probably, I don't know if I would have made it through college. And I know there's a lot of people who up until graduation didn't even know those programs existed. What are some organizations or groups like you recommend first gen students to join, like in general? I love TRIO. I often say that TRIO is a big reason why I am in college and I am a firm believer of that. Upward Bound is from TRIO. If it were not for my Upward Bound mentors in high school, I would have never made it to college. And if it were not for my TRIO mentors in college, connecting me with other resources as well, I would have never made it through college. Most schools do have TRIO from what I know, but TRIO is a big one. Any form of TRIO that a school could have most likely it's going to be a mentoring program. A trio is always good. And if they have any type of mentoring program, now they're starting to get them. I don't know about your school, but now my school added on top of College Possible, they added a different program of having success coaches. So first year students had a coach, mentor, coach, whatever. I guess now, now they're kind of seeing like there's different struggles that first generation students have that we've never had to, not that they've never had to face before, but I would say our generation is much more demanding in a good way. So now, you know, they're getting first generation students are saying, hey, either you give me help, either there's some form of help for me here, or I'm out. And now they're seeing that and our first year mentor programs or coaches or, you know, so find a coach if your school offers that, find trio, but also Go to events. Go to any school planned event because you never know who you are going to meet, whether that be finding someone from a mentor program, finding clubs you didn't know about, or making relationships with professors who could also be mentors. My professor, my Spanish professor who couldn't be an advisor because she was new, is probably more than a friend than some peers that I graduated college with. 
like we text, we, you know, I've been to her house, we went out for lunch, we went out for brunch, dinner, you name it. You know, just don't be afraid to really put yourself out there to whatever limit you're comfortable with, but making sure that like if you feel like your school is not serving you, then maybe go out and look. And I know some people don't like that or people feel as though I attend this institution, they should be giving me the help or I should they should be telling me but sometimes they do people just don't show up to events don't look at what the school's offering event wise club wise and people do not read their emails those are those are big ones just look for or ask people you know roommates other friends like have you heard about anything around campus or are you any in any program that can help me with xyz maybe they know maybe they don't know maybe they know someone who does know and then you know you just need to at some point advocate for yourself sadly like now going towards like the ending part like what is some advice you would tell incoming christian students do your research look at the school's website in and out learn how to navigate the website even if you haven't made a decision look at what they have to offer a lot of schools will have their clubs and organizations on there. They'll have Greek life. They'll have any type of other program. I wrote for the school newspaper and I knew going in that that was something that the school offered. So do your research. Don't get caught in the party scene. People come and go. Trust me. I, I get it. I know it's so much easier to say, hey, you know what? I'm going to go drinking on a Sunday night and maybe skip class. We'll see. But I promise everything has its own time. Like, you know, everyone says, like, todo tiene su tiempo. You're there for school. I don't know how many times I have heard people say, maybe if I wasn't hanging out with the wrong crowd freshman year, maybe if I wasn't doing this my freshman, sophomore year, my grades would be better. My GPA would be up there. Your GPA follows you the whole way through. You are a junior going into your senior year. You need to apply for internships for your major or sometimes schools require most majors you need to do an internship your gpa follows you like that that is big and i don't know how many people i've heard say i wish i wasn't doing this my freshman year i wish i wasn't doing that or worrying about that for school you know going home every weekend instead of staying in and being like no i have to do my homework i have to do this but also aside from that do not be scared to ask for help whether that's from mentors or tutors i took what was it stats i don't know what the hell i was doing i haven't taken math since high school c's got degrees and that is for a reason i passed barely but i passed my roommates had taken stats and to them it was like oh yeah you just do this this and this and you're fine to me it wasn't that it's not because i don't know like it's not because I, I'm not good at it. It's because I had not done that type of work in years, let alone that's not my major. So especially if you're working on something that's not related to your major at all, ask for help. Or if it is related to your major and it's just a new section of it, asking for help does not mean you are weak. Tell everyone that all the time. Asking for help does not make you any less of a person or make you less worthy I feel like there's a stigma around asking for help and obviously like there's a lot of things that I've been through that I had to learn that asking for help is not a bad especially when it comes to school and then aside from that talk to your family if you're close with your family sometimes I would text my cousins and be like I'm so stressed like I don't know what the hell I'm doing sometimes you just need to vocalize that hey I'm having a hard time and sometimes that itself helps or you know what ask your roommates ask your friends guys like 
can we just watch movies and not do anything? Or can we, I'm struggling. Can we talk about what we are struggling with? Maybe they can help you. Maybe you can help them. But I think being vocal about your struggles is also you know, something that people don't learn to do or aren't comfortable with that can be very beneficial. And last question now, like what are your future plans that you're not out of college? That's a tough question because I'm going to give you the timeline of what my life has been like. I graduated in May. Oh, in April, I got a job in Iowa. I signed a lease in Iowa. I graduated in May. I came home for two weeks. I moved back June, July. I broke the lease and I officially moved back home on Friday. Don't have a job. <laughs> and I'm living with my mom again. You know, I, I helped start the first Mexican folkloric dance group in Cedar Rapids mm-hmm. with one of my really good friends. I feel like I did what I had to do over there. It might have only been for two months, three months, whatever. I'm forcing myself to take a break because I don't really know what breaks are. Since high school, I've been go, go, go. There's not one summer that I didn't do anything. I was always doing something every summer since high school. So I've never had a summer where I'm not doing anything. A week before graduation, I li- I don't think it could have been more clear The universe literally told me to slow down. A week before graduation, I got a freaking concussion. Walking. I kid you not. Literally, I wish I had a funnier story. Like, I wish I was like, yeah, I was out at the bar and then I was doing this and that and I was drunk and then I got a concussion. No, I was walking. It was raining and I did a little speed run to the car and I fell and I, the universe said, slow down. I got a damn concussion and that last week I was on bed rest the whole week and a month or two weeks ago same thing happened I was working maybe 12 hours a day at the daycare that I was working at plus the dance group ended up sick there was maybe four days where I had to stay in bed and my friend told me like you literally have never taken a break you got the concussion you graduated you went home you moved back you did this you did that working 12 hour days then I was sick like really sick i am forcing myself to have a break but i'm still applying to places there's a lot of things that i like to do so i don't i don't think there's really one career path you know i like i told you i had an appointment prior to this and my doctor asked me like well what do you want to do i don't know i like radio i like writing but i also now have experience like on the hill in in dc that public policy or policy is also something that's of my interest that goes with the communications that I majored in. So I'm applying everywhere. You know, I'm not doing anything, but I'm still sending my resume here, sending my resume there. It's a very hard, the job market after graduation is so hard. I promise you the majority of people do not graduate and are set with a job and that's okay. And I learned that the hard way. And grad school right after graduation, you could go or you cannot go. Grad school for me is still up in the air, but again, I am literally forcing myself to take a break. Family doesn't agree with that. They say, we feel like if you take a break, you're never going to go back to school. But I know, I know myself, I know my mental health, and I know that for my well-being, I need a break. So right now, it's really just looking at the job market applying to a variety of whether that be writing, radio, you know, always keeping in contact with your locale or policy, you know, people who work with policy, both in the city. I know if I just pick up the phone and make a phone call, say, hey, I'm looking for positions in DC. 
I will have the help. But I'm waiting off on that because again, I'm literally forcing myself to have a break. And then I'll, I do plan to start that like ball rolling towards the beginning of August, that's like the next week, the middle of August. But I was really just moving back home and sit down. And we're back. I really hope you enjoyed this interview. That was Cynthia and she recently graduated and I felt like that interview was really good. I f- and also, I guess like the whole point of this segment is to kind of profile a lot of these first generation students and discuss any important, I guess, similarities. And also, I feel like, I guess, talking more about this topic destroys a lot of the stigmas behind it. And for people who are first generation students feel like they, they have other people in common and that their experiences aren't like necessarily like unique i feel like this segment is also important to discuss like how a lot of first generation students are and also to kind of come back when the stigma behind it and to uplift other first generation voices obviously with the goal to also include other first generation students like let them know they're kind of like not alone but also to know that other people are also going through that experience and you know there's a lot of people have that type of support group but to wrap up everything you are listening to college 101 a first gen guide and i am your host melissa and i really hope you enjoyed this segment College 101, a first-gen guide. Hey everyone, welcome to College 101, a first-gen guide. My name is Melissa and this is a segment where we talk about first-generation students' experiences in college. Our goal is to, if there's any common experiences first-generational students go through, and how we can uplift first-generation students in higher institutions. Tune in, we will be having interviews with, obviously, first-generation students, either currently in college or already graduate. In this episode, we'll be talking about, obviously, first-generation students, but specifically also a lot of students who are DACA recipients as well. So if you're not aware what DACA means, it's so it's a program that's kind of catered that's kind of labeled deferred action for childhood arrivals. And this is for people who come as like children to the United States. This also grants grants them work authorization, but also protection from deportation. So in this case, a lot of students who are who are also DACA recipients are probably are also college students as well. And I just wanted to tackle also like this type, this topic of like being a first generation student, but also having like, like an additional thing, you know, as well, like, obviously, like a first generation student's experience is kind of very unique to others as that they don't really have like a concrete support group. And also it's their first time without help, like navigating like these higher education. I feel like also being like a DACA recipient is a very unique experience because it also changes a lot of the aspects and how you kind of how you experience like university college or whatever so like kind of to kind of explain what DACA recipients are like what series or what like I guess expectations it is so to be like a DACA recipient you have like to meet a certain um, series of like strict criteria like you obviously have to pass the next like a background check and something that's like interesting I guess is like they kind of have to renew their application every two years to remain in the program and this obviously grants them from deportation but there's also cases where people have been deported even if they were prior DACA recipients I guess this this is also very personal like I, I come from like a like a like a Latino community so a lot of people are actually undocumented 
but this is also like a wide range because a lot of like a lot of DACA recipients aren't necessarily like from like a certain ethnicity or like culture group like it's very it, it ranges like there's a lot of people who are DACA recipients and I guess a certain criteria for a lot of people who are you have to be I think bef- before June 15 2012 to kind of qualify for being a DACA recipient the onset rules is that if you're under 31 years old as of like June 15 2012 and that you would have to be before June 15 2007 until present it'd be considered for an application and a lot of the people they choose is like people who are currently like working to get either their high school degree or their GED equivalent or if you've been like either part of the military but yeah like I kind of like I guess my personal views on it like I really feel like a lot of the situation where like a lot of DACA recipients are in is extremely unfair just because I guess my personal view like I don't really believe in in strict immigration like I'm pretty I think I'm probably like open borders I also don't believe like your documentation like your your immigration status should really prevent you from getting a high like an education I feel like that's extremely unfair and and I feel like it's also very prevalent to a lot of people in the United States but yeah like like DACA renewals as well they're extremely expensive they are extremely stressful and especially like I guess especially with a lot of our current political climate like it's very stressful for a person who is a DACA recipient when it comes to the issues of immigration because because like for example like during the Trump administration like how stressful it was like how he like kind of threatened to order the end of the program in 2017 but you know like obviously court cases kept it kind of revived but also like I guess with our current presidency with Joe Biden like how he's issued like a certain action to preserve and fortify like DACA I guess it's just like a very in my opinion, it's a very, like, a stressful experience for a lot of, like, DACA recipients just because, I guess, every presidency kind of determines, like, your likelihood in this country or, I guess, your your likelihood for any, like, opportunity, not necessarily because, and I feel like a lot of, like, in the application process, like, a lot of students are labeled as international just because if they're born in another country and they don't, obviously, they're not citizens here, then it, they don't receive the certain benefits. Like, how we're going to talk in the interview also. How, like, FAFSA doesn't really work for a lot of people who aren't documented because they won't receive, obviously, any government aid. And I feel like that's extremely unfair because it sets back people who are actually willing to, you know, kind of go to college. And also, who aspire to, who also obtain to get higher education than that, being, like, a degree. Going on to that topic, I interviewed a student called Daniel. And they're currently attending DePaul University and also providing us their experience as a first-generation student and a DACA recipient. My name is Daniel Martinez. I currently go to Paul University. My major is Latino Studies, and I was born in Mexico City, but I have lived in Chicago for most of my life. And, like, if you feel comfortable, like, can you, like, tell me your immigration status? Currently, I'm a DACA recipient. I came to the United States as a little kid. And, well, I'm kind of glad that the DACA program came out around a little bit before high school for me. And I guess my next question would be, like, what does it mean for you to be a DACA student? I think for me personally, being a DACA student meant it meant being somewhere I wasn't necessarily supposed to be mostly because 
At the start of the college process, I felt like everything I heard, all the information that was getting told to me was very much like, it was very much up to me to figure out how I was going to navigate the college process. My high school counselor like kind of sat me down and asked me, so how does this work for you? And I very much kind of expected them to know. And so it was more of, oh, okay, so I'm going to have to do my research and look up stuff and then some colleges in particular aren't very open about the application status in terms of uh, DACA students aren't necessarily either in-state out-of-state sometimes they just get thrown into international student status which is absolutely horrible some colleges aren't very clear with that until you start the application process and then they ask you for essentially a bank account and then also something that shows that you can cover three years of full tuition in case something happens to you i feel like that's what it meant for me but it also just means like having to figure out how to navigate all these spaces, not maybe not necessarily on your own, but oftentimes with like limited information. So yeah, obviously if you were having a difficult time like applying to colleges, like how did you overcome that? How did you research? How, how did you get help? One of my dad's friend's daughter was a DACA recipient and kind of helped me navigate a bit in terms of like towards Loyola but it was realistically a lot of going on the internet. Specifically, there is a DACA Reddit page that did list a good amount of resources in terms of what colleges are safe and stuff like that. Well, not necessarily safe, but are more open with both the application process, but also like, oh, we do want you here. For me, I felt mostly like, uh, like I wasn't sure. And for, for DePaul, it's a funny story. When I applied, they originally also had me flagged as an international student because I have a social security number, but it doesn't bounce towards anything. So when you put that in, the application just thinks you're like an international student. So I hadn't heard back from them and the May 1st deadline was approaching. And so my counselor like just sat me down and asked me, did you actually apply? If you did, we're going to call them right now. We called them right now. And they're just like, oh, we're waiting on his banking information uh, because, you know, he's an international student. So we're just trying to make sure that all the paperwork's in. With that meeting in my, with my counselor, the person from the hiring, or not the hiring, from the application office at DePaul asked if I was there and then very much, hey, if you feel comfortable answering this, can I ask about your immigration status? And then I said, oh, well, I, I'm a dreamer. I'm a DACA recipient. He's like, oh, okay. Yeah, no, we'll, we'll let you know about the application decision in a week. So it, it was just stuff like that, but it was very much just trial and error and also l looking for as much information online as possible. And I guess like my other question would also be like when you actually entered college, so guessing DePaul, like how was your experience? How was your first day of school? Like was it, I guess, a different environment where that you encountered? I believe it was it was very different from from high school in general, mostly because now it, it does make a lot more sense. High school is very structured. It's very rigid. You have a schedule. You have people watching over you for those eight to 
10 hours that you're there. In college, it was very much so of you could show up to class. You could not show up to class. I could care less. There's 30 kids in this class. I'm going to teach this class. Um, And it was very much this shift of responsibility towards you. I wasn't expecting to have to, or I wasn't prepared to have to navigate my own schedule and stuff like that. Um, The environment was very different, mostly because I hadn't really navigated DePaul before the first day of classes outside of like the small, the tour on orientation. So it was very much still got there early. I was running around the Lincoln Park campus trying to figure out where my classes were. And then it's also DePaul does some discover classes or explore classes. I don't remember which is which off the top of my head, but one of them is more for out of state or out of the city students that allows them to navigate Chicago for a week before school starts. And then the other class is more of just learning about Chicago since you're going to be here for four years. And I took a class that was uh, focused on Latino writers in Chicago. I, I felt I was very much in a place where I wanted to be because I found a decently sized group of Latinos and I felt like I'd I, I fit in. So that was one of my high points in my first day, but it was also just navigating a completely new world for me as well. And I guess like answering more into like, I guess the whole DACA thing is like, in your opinion, like what are some struggles DACA students encounter like in comparison to other like students who aren't DACA recipients? It boils down a lot to information and resources because when I did talk to some people, they let me know that before that, DePaul used to have a couple more resources, but then the whole Trump administration happened and people were a bit more reluctant. And then it's also just before there, there wasn't that much information on the internet of what is accessible, what isn't accessible. You had to go hunt it down. And then it also felt like there was this responsibility of also making sure to spread the word within small internet communities of resources that are available. I think for me personally, because I'm very forgetful, it's maintaining reminders of your of renewing your DACA. Because right now that I'm employed by DePaul, I, I need to renew my DACA soon because it also affects my work status at DePaul because they have the employment authorization document on hand and it expires this year and so they're just they've been double checking just to see that I've started that process so it's very much just I feel like a different experience in terms of having to worry about stuff like that I know at the back of my head I've worried about putting myself in a situation where I would get stopped by the police so I was very wary about going out and making too many dumb choices in a night because for other people, it might just be like, oh, you spend a night. But once that report's written, for me very much so, I think I, I, I just treat it as a one strike policy, one strike and you're already out. And then I think also, I feel like in terms of opening up and talking about your experience, it's very much a double-edged sword where you'll find people that support you, but then you'll also find people that question what you have to say 
and very much so you know if you don't like it you don't have to be here yeah and I guess my other question would be as well like do you feel like you have support and like university for being like a DACA recipient like a dreamer there's a there's a good amount of support there's a good amount of resources that are available to me I think that for me just that interaction when I was applying where the applications officer was very much so like oh you're you're a DACA recipient okay my bad that was that was an issue on our side we'll let you know our decision in a, a couple of weeks that very much showed me they have dealt with this they understand it they're not completely blind to this kind of situation and they also are open to it their support from different groups there was a bit of and it may not be for everyone but there was a bit of political movement in regards to this within different groups at DePaul. I think overall, I was lucky enough to come to a campus where I do feel welcomed and I do feel that there's a good amount of resources. If you find that there is a good amount of like resources in your university, like is it like easy for you to communicate with like, an, like I don't know, faculty about like your status, either like professors or like people who are more in charge of like logistics of it? I think it very much depends on a case-by-case situation, mostly because professors can definitely range for your general education classes. At least with my academic advisor, I'm pretty open with it, specifically with Latino studies professors. I do talk about it a bit more, but I will say that I'm still very worried or wary of just like announcing it all the time I feel like even with how much we've progressed it's still good in this day and age to be a bit more safe and I guess my other question would also be like what are some things you would tell incoming DACA students communication is honestly your best friend communicate with specifically for the pod say communicate with the um, the Paul Central who are in charge of all the financial stuff because they can very much help you with finding resources communicate with your advisor but then this also goes by a case by case because I have heard some stories about some advisors but I'd say communicate with your advisor. I think as long as you maintain that communication and also just ask around with people you feel comfortable, you'll be able to find the resources. Or if not, they'll be able to point you towards someone who might be able to help you out more. But I do think that communication is very important. That and also just navigating and trying to find resources. It it sucks but I feel like it's kind of the only way to do it sometimes. And I guess now to like start wrapping up more, like what are your thoughts about how in general, how the U.S. treats dreamers? We are very much sort of seen and painted as a charity case, but also like for the lack of a better expression, like that one Latino friend where they can just point to and be like, oh, no, we aren't necessarily that horrible towards this community. Look at what we've done for this very isolated and specific group. I feel that there is a lot more that the United States could do if they really wanted to. 
I I am thankful for the small steps that we've taken, but like everything else, I feel like they're taking their time. And a last question, like what do you personally hope to see in the future for DACA recipients? I hope that they extend the range first most. I feel like there is still a good amount of people that didn't necessarily fall into the range would benefit and put it to more use than I have. I'm, I'm not completely sure if they still accept new applications. So just accepting more applications and very much so a path to citizenship that isn't convoluted and complex and sort of a 10 to 20 year plan that and also just more more transparency in both the workspace application processes and just higher education and welcome back I hope you enjoyed this interview. I thought it was really good. But going on to the topic about how like a DACA recipient and how it kind of how it also changes when you're also applying to school and how how difficult the process is. It's definitely kind of discouraging. But at the same time, I feel like don't give up, you know, but I also wanted to share some information. Like if you're from Illinois and from Chicago and are like a DACA recipient, then I guess I recommend these scholarships to apply because because I feel like they helpful. So Illinois does provide some scholarships for doc- undocumented students that either being your fear DACA recipient or just I guess the term what they call dreamers but nonetheless if you're an undocumented student there are some scholarships for you and I would recommend applying to them because it's free money you know but I know Illinois does offer like a special one called Illinois Dream Fund scholarships where you know you get granted there's also the Dream US National at opportunity scholarships um the golden apple foundation for a lot of people who want to be teachers i feel like that's really helpful and you know apply to it there's also the dreamers who need those scholarships and that unless it provides i feel like that one's very helpful i mean it's free money in general um la fiesta de solo scholarship is really good and those and there's also another scholarship called dreamers and allies run scholarship but these are just a few scholarships that i kind of like would say they're kind of like safe to apply that i would say i would recommend just because they cater specifically for a lot of undocumented student the fact that either you're an undocumented student shouldn't really set you back from like going to college and wanting to kind of learn you know but nonetheless i really hope you enjoyed this interview and the whole segment as well this was college 101 a first gen guide and i am your host melissa and stay tuned for other episodes college 101 a first gen guide Hey everyone, welcome to College 101, a first-gen guide. My name is Melissa, and this is a segment where we talk about first-generation students' experiences in college. Our goal is to, if there's any common experiences first-generational students go through, and how we can uplift first-generation students in higher institutions. Tune in, we'll be having interviews with, obviously, first-generation students, either currently in college or already graduates. In this episode specifically, we also talk about DACA recipients or undocumented students and kind of their experiences navigating higher education. In this case, we have a special interview with with Alondra, who already graduated from college, 
and we and I sat down and had a conversation with her about how her experience varies and kind of you know how her experience being like a first generation student but also being an undocumented student and kind of how she navigating that experience and how what she recommends for others to do but yeah I really hope I really enjoyed this interview I felt like it was very obviously it's I feel like it was very informative, but also I feel like if you are like a person who is undocumented, it's pretty helpful. But also to not feel discouraged, you know, pursuing higher education because like that's if you want to do it, I feel like you should be able to do it and there's no reason why you shouldn't. But anyway, let's just begin the interview. My name is Alonza Carbona. I was actually born in Mexico and then I moved to the United States with my family when I was three years old. I was, I worked really hard actually and I ended up getting a scholarship from Posse. So it's like a, it's a Posse Foundation, it's a leadership um, place for four years. And I went to a school in Vermont called Middlebury College, which is a liberal arts college, but it's also a PWI, which is a predominantly white institution. Um, so I lived in Vermont for four years and then I graduated with a bachelor's in psychology. I was supposed to have a minor in education, but I actually never did like the paperwork for it. So I just had multiple classes for the minor. And then I came back to Chicago after my graduation. So I graduated last year and I'm currently working at uh, Edelman, which is a PR public relations uh, agency. Yeah, I think that was everything, right? I've been DACA for the past, I want to say like six to seven years. Another question I would ask you, like, what does it mean to be like a DACA, like recipient, student, all that? I would say for me, it's kind of like a badge of honor, I would say, because just like thinking about the amount of resources that they are available for DACA students is very minimal. I like had an easier time because in Little Village, we had Enlace, which is a, like an organization that helps the community. And I had a mentor there, Quintiano who was very much like helping DACA students because he himself was DACA. So I was able to get a bunch of resources. That's how I was able to get the Posse Foundation. And I was always, and I've been very open about my legal status, just because for me, like, it's not something to be ashamed of. But I do know a couple of people who I graduated with in both college, actually, and, and high school, who have been very hesitant to say their status. I don't know if you remember this, but there was actually an event called, I think it was like Out of the Shadows or something. And it was like an event that encouraged people who were undocumented and who were DACA to actually like tell their stories because there's a lot of stigma behind it. And I think it's still very much the same, just because like a lot of people are like, there are a lot of barriers and like, again, you are undocumented. So there is that sort of like fear of like, because we're not technically protected, DACA is a status that's still not accepted as like a legal form in the US. So like, it's basically like in basic terms, it's a work permit. Like if you leave the country, if you commit like a crime as low as like a DUI, you can get your status revoked. Like there's very, like there's still stuff that like for us, it's not very much protected. Um, I know, like, like I said, like my journey was very different because I received the support and I had mentorship pretty early on. But just like knowing that other people did not, like I knew a friend who went to Jones College Prep, which if, I mean, you, you know, it, like it's a very like selective environment. And like, I remember she was like telling me like when she was about to graduate, they told her like, 
we don't know how to help you we're not going to help you <laughs> like in, in basic terms and like even for myself when I was going through the posse process like I remember I like broke down with my mentor because like basically he told me like because even though I got posse like people don't know that we still have to pay for room and board so that was like out of pocket every year around $30,000 and I was like I cannot pay 30k every year it kind of sucked because I realized like wow like this little like stupid piece of paper pretty much is like stopping me from getting a full-time tuition scholarship like tuition paid for you know it definitely has been really hard but I think just knowing that it's been really hard and I've still been been able to overcome that and still help other people in my situation I think that's why I say like it's a badge of honor because not everyone has you know those circumstances and not everyone has that support how was your experience applying to college when you were in high school like you touched about it I don't know if you could go like more deeper with it I feel like other schools have like less help than little village just because we have a we do have a lot of undocumented students I will say it was like I definitely feel like it was easier compared to other people like like you mentioned like little village it's of its population is pretty much like undocumented latinx latino latinas so like i was able to get all that help and the resource particularly because of enlace that was like literally in the school i will say though it was very hard my senior year just because like we all like you know how everyone had to what was the application i forgot the the application you have to fill out for like so like they had workshops for FAFSA and it was literally like me and like four other kids who would be excluded from that, you know, because it was like, there's no point of me sitting in like an hour and a half of this meeting when I like don't need to do anything. So it was kind of, which I was like very much afterwards, just knowing what FAFSA is in the process, I was very much like, yes, like I missed that part. Yeah, just having like those differences where it's like, well, like I'm not going to be there. And then like I mentioned when I had Posse, like I literally made it to the last round. I was good to go, like, you know, and then they told me they're like, but if you do get it, you might have to pay 30K out of pocket every year. And it was something that easily somebody else could have been like, oh, don't worry about it. You know, I have FAFSA. You literally only have to pay like 10K, which is manageable but for someone like me that's like i can't do that my mom she was a fat she she's a factory worker you know like my aunt is older like i so it was like situations that i just couldn't afford and i broke down because it was like my whole life i've been working you know i've been staying at school from like 7 a.m all the way to like 6 p.m every day like making sure that i was like having honor roll having awards basically all my life doing stuff so I could succeed in school for someone to tell me my last year that that was impossible and like I remember one of my high school teachers who I was like very much close to he literally told me like the best chance that you have is going to community college and then maybe like transferring into a, a your last two years into a four university which to me was kind of a slap in the face because I like I said before I had worked so many hours not just through high school but like middle school elementary school like volunteering during my summers um after work you know just to get into this college for someone to tell me like very easily enough and to be like you're not gonna make it just because of something that was out of my control and so yeah that that like definitely hurt but I was again like I I will my mentors were so incredibly supportive like when I remember when I broke down in the middle of the hall like Kinky literally was like are you okay you know do you need anything he wrote me a note so I could miss the next period and stay in the library and pretty much like cry because it was hard for me but if I hadn't had that support like I probably would have dropped out of, of this amazing opportunity which is like the posse scholarship so yeah it, it definitely it was bittersweet I will say but I was lucky because I feel like hadn't I, if I hadn't gotten 
the Posse scholarship, I, I would have struggled immensely. How were you able to like cover your tuition and housing and all that? Yeah, so I was very proactive and just like researching. Like like I said, like for me, and this is why I say it's kind of a badge of honor because I went to Posse directly to one of the recruiters and I, and I, I was really upfront with him. I was like, look, I have DACA. I can't afford this. I do need to connect me to students who are DACA, who are Middlebury, who are also Posse. And they put me in contact with like two students who are currently in college, who are also from Chicago. And they told me, you know, and I, and I remember calling them in my senior year and I was like, how did you do it? Is it possible? And they pretty much were like, yeah, like you literally, what I ended up paying for college for four years was like 1K every year. So in total, it was like, I paid maybe like 6K for all four years, which is like, if you really think about it, that's really, really, really cheap compared to any college. And this is like considered one of the top colleges in in the country so <laughs> i think i got saved because my mom also wasn't making that income and so what they do what some colleges do if they have enough money is that they kind of they tell you okay based on your income like you're only paying like 25 to 10 percent and we'll cover the rest with merit no not merit scholarships sorry um with like scholarships that are um need-based so again more about like your call experience like now fast forward like when you enter college for the first time how was your experience like how was your freshman year your first year of school something like that um I was it I feel like my first and second year like they were better because going in I was more naive and that's the thing that saved me like I did not know much I went into the school thinking I've made it I've had a scholarship. I have a scholarship. Um, I'm doing great. I, again, was very much lucky because I had a, a group of peers who were there for me, who were Latinx, who were first gen through Posse. Posse helped a lot because, as you know, like we have a group of 10 students who go in. And so we kind of, we definitely supported each other. And that school has three Posse's. So one from Chicago, one from New York, one from LA. And it was a community that you could really reach out to and ask for help. I also had a mentor who was a French department chair. He, William, like, we love him. He was very much helping us all through four years. I remember he was, like, one of those people that, like, if you had problems, like, people would just go to his office and talk to him for hours and he would listen. So it, it was a lot of help that I was receiving. And, again, like, I, I will say I feel like I didn't know just like how, how do I explain this? Hold up. I'm just trying to get my words together. I feel like just going from a community like Little Village that's predominantly Linux, I felt like this was my community. And then going into somewhere like Middlebury that again, in the middle of the woods, rich, white, it's so different. Just to put it into context, like Middlebury has a couple of like princes around the world. They have like, I think like maybe more than 50% belongs to the 1%. So it's it's pretty like high income and it's very different and you can tell. It's kind of like you could tell after a while the microaggressions get to the point where like they do get to you because it's, remember, it's like four years of like stuff that even now, like I will be honest, like I'm still kind of processing after graduation because it's things that you don't even notice that kind of like you brush off and you're like, nah, it doesn't matter. Like it's, you know, they, that like in Little Village, I was like, you know, you'd say like, oh, somebody beat you up. Like you have that physical, like and microaggressions don't work like that. Like you can't see them, you brush them off, whatever. But it comes after a while. I think for me, it was like 
my fourth year, I was really feeling it. And especially as a woman of color, like you're getting not just like those microaggressions for being a woman, but for being a woman of color. And the beauty standards in my college were very much white, skinny, heterosexual girls, right? Like for me after a while, I was like, I was very much affected. I remember there was days where I'd stay in bed and it took me a while to figure out why. That's why I say like my first two years, I was naive. I didn't really know much. After those two years, my junior, senior, I feel like it, it was just getting a lot to me. Going through the education system and seeing that you don't really need it and it's such a gateway, like that's the thing that really frustrates me now because it's like, I wish my generation would have been, been given the choice of like, okay, you can do something else. Like you don't necessarily have to go the route of like, education like you can literally go to trade school which honestly like what I'm, I'm getting paid now here at this like firm that's one of the biggest PR firms in the world like I'm probably getting paid less than somebody who went to trade school it's something that I wish people would have emphasized like you don't need to do this at least in the Latinx community they wouldn't emphasize education a lot because like uh, education is really good if you have your dad and your mom who are like CEOs who are like lawyers who are like dentists because that's what gatekeeping is like you literally just need this piece of paper which quite frankly like a lot of people paid for instead of actually earning especially in a schools like PWIs so it's kind of frustrating because I feel like I I could have done more like I wish I would have studied studied the arts I wish I would have just given myself a break especially during COVID. So what are some things like struggles that DACA students encounter and like in comparison to other students who are not DACA like there's two things that I can think of at the top of my head. One of them is obviously like just that struggle of how am I going to pay for college? <laughs> it's so expensive. People still want to go to it. Like, obviously, I'm not saying don't go to college, um, but like if, if that's what you choose to do. Something else that for me, at least, like because my school was so close to the Canadian border, I remember like this girl that we always used to hang out with, like she would kind of make insensitive jokes that for me, like back then weren't as insensitive because I was like, she's my friend. But like every time we would meet and she was also plastic. So like, keep in mind, we have meetings like every week, right? And basically every week in front of everyone, she would be like, when are we going to Canada? When are we going to Canada? And it's like 10 people in this room. And it literally came to the point where like everyone was just telling her like she she needed to shut up. Like she cannot be saying that. For me, again, in this room, it's kind of embarrassing because it's like, I, well, at first it was kind of embarrassing. Afterwards, I was really annoyed because I was like, we're literally telling you that. You, you're basically saying that you would rather exclude me from this trip than like not go. You know what I mean? She had issues, but like that's one of the things. And I can, like, even just, like, other groups of friends, like, don't tell me, like, oh, do you want to go to, like, Acapulco? Do you want to go to, like, you know, different places around the world? And I'm like, I can't do that. We have to renew our DACA every two years, which I think they raised it, which was, I think it's now $750. I know it used to be, like, $500, and they raised the prices now. So I am very lucky that I can afford it. But like my sister, she was struggling for a while to renew her DACA because she could not afford $750 to renew just for two years. Like you can't work if you don't have that. So it's kind of like, a, it does not make sense to me. Those are the, yeah, those are the three that I'm, I'm thinking of right now. Um, I th also like, 
I've seen that because I have a couple of friends who are DACA. <laughs> I don't know. This is to everyone. Like, obviously, it doesn't apply to every DACA person. The jokes where you're like, oh, I'll marry you. Don't worry about it. Like, I'll fix your, your papers. Like, just marry me. One of my friends was named. Like, yeah, it's kind of because it's like you don't understand the legal process behind that. Like, you know what I mean? Like, some people get arrested for that other people like you need to pay thousands and thousands of dollars when interacting with like faculty and like people who work in the university like did you find any like barriers in communication oh yes 100 not just for being DACA but also just being first gen I remember very vividly like one of my neuroscience classes I ended up missing half schooling, like the classes for that year. I blame the professor actually, because at the beginning of the year, I gone to her and I told her mistake on the school's part. And so she came to us and was saying, oh, you only need to attend classes once a week instead of the two weeks that is scheduled on our end. I went to her, I asked her, I guess there was a miscommunication because it was one class and one lab instead of two classes and one lab. And that's what she was referring to. But at the end of the day, I ended up only attending one of the classes instead of the two days of the week. And that's how I ended up only attending 50% of the class. And at the end of the year, of the semester, not the year, I reach out to her and then she hits me back with the, oh, you've been absent. Like, what is, what is happening? Like, and I was like, what do you mean? I've been going to Tuesday classes every day. And she said, no, it's Tuesdays and Thursdays. But my thing is, and I told her, I was like, how did you miss me not being in class? 50% of the time when ours, our class was like 20 people. And mind, mind you, I had had a, like multiple classes with her before. She knew me at that point because I was a, uh, a, a senior actually. So I was like, how did you miss me not being here every Thursday? And how are you telling me that I missed 50% of the class literally like a month before we had to take finals. So that really was, and she was a white professor. She was older, especially STEM, just STEM courses are really hard. And so she wasn't like, no se prestaba, you know what I mean? Like, no, she wasn't kind of like, oh, um, I understand like what you're going through or like, oh, like here get some free time. And quite honestly, like even going up to professors for help, I was kind of very much like intimidated because in this school, like if you didn't get an A, like if you got a B plus in a paper, like that was like not good. Like you had to go get it corrected. Like you had to basically like try to get an A. If you come from the same background as them and you have similar likes, like you're going to connect. You want to be able to be, feel comfortable going to their office hours. You're going to be more more likely to reach out and ask for extension. I was like from the city, from low income, first gen. My parents, you know, were not as involved as other parents. Do you wish that there were some like more support for DACA students in your institution, like in your university? In my university in particular, I felt like they were really trying to help. Like they, for me, I got my renewal, like they paid for my renewal twice. So I was able to do that through them. I didn't have to pay anything. Um, they also had like a lawyer on call in case anybody needed anything. There was a support group through one of the orgs that I, I led actually. We had a support group, although it didn't really last long. Again, just because like people were kind of hesitant to participate and to make their status known. I do wish they'd be more public with it. Like when I found out that I could have my DACA renewal paid for, like that was because I reached out to somebody that worked in Posse who was uh, a liaison. And I, I went up to his office, you know, and I was very much proactive and I was telling him, I don't know if I can pay for this. Like, is there something that somebody can do? 
um, talking to other DACA students and them and them they were the first ones to let me know like hey talk to this person it was a lot of digging on my end where whereas like somebody else probably they would have been like oh here's the information like you know you can get this paid for and even people that I gave that information to like I they didn't know like if it wasn't for me they weren't going to know so just making sure that that information is public but I will say like I've heard of stories where other students and other colleges didn't get that help. It was very much like, oh, just don't know, like figure it out yourself. But in terms of like Middlebury, they were pretty good. Like, I guess more to end this interview, like what are your thoughts about how the U.S. treats like dreamers and like DACA students in general? Oh yeah, I have a lot. <laughs> I have a lot to say on that. I do. It's very interesting because like I remember somebody told me that they hated the fact that they accomplished dreamers because it means that you're just never going to achieve that status. Like you're always continually dreaming of the state. And that does make sense because when you look at like every presidential election, right? Like it's always like one of the main points. Oh, like we're gonna give dreamers like a, a path to citizenship. Like, oh, we're gonna help immigrants like achieve their status. You know, like immigrants have been working their whole life who have been paid for work that nobody wants to do. Like stuff like that they do it every year i mean every like election period they do it every time and every time they never do anything and it's kind of like dangling that that like status of like oh you both me like you'll be a citizen or like you'll get my citizenship or whatever um and they don't and they still play with us like every, and i like i think and i'm not correct i even remember like trump at one point was like uh if you don't like pass this legislation like i will never give like DACA, DACA individuals like citizenship which was like playing with that you know what i mean like this is not a chess game this is not like this is literally people's lives who are you are basically saying promising something to and and saying oh you know you're gonna have a path to citizenship but at the end of the day it's we're pawns and so that's my biggest issue and quite honestly, it's just the fact that like, it's a joke, like paying $700 for us to like work here, you know, um, and we're kind of like in a cage because we can't leave. And if you wanna, like, if you get this amazing opportunity to work out of the country or do this like amazing opportunity to do an internship or fellowship outside of the country, like now you have to pay an extra like 1k just to go outside of the country and then you need to return so it's just it's it's very frustrating and in my opinion like i'm i feel like a lot of people are kind of waking up to that and just realizing that like maybe it's not as great to be in the u.s just because of all of like that's happening in this in this country um and just like the lack of protection that like daca individuals have like i don't think people understand that if I get a DUI, I'm pretty much, I cannot renew my DACA status. If I, for some reason, like, I'm carrying cannabis, which, like, if you really think about it, like, everyone out is, like, smoking and carrying cannabis. And if you get caught, you get a ticket. If I get caught, like, I could be facing deportation. Because, like, we have to be twice as perfect. We have to be twice as careful, even though, like, in U.S. law, like, we're still protected, right? And quotations on that because you know we're not like we're protected as long as we're able to produce and give money back to the government so yeah and honestly like for me i'm still thinking if i even want to stay in the states 
like for me i'm very much like like i i feel like there's better countries out there who definitely appreciate um immigrants like myself totally and my last very last question is like what do you personally hope to see in the future for daca recipients i mean the obvious answer is probably you know citizenship because we've earned it we've been in the same country we've paid our taxes we probably know more about history than actual us citizens um and so like definitely we deserve our citizenship not that not that we're going to earn it because we no not that we should be given but we've earned our place here and then also just i i really wish that a lot of individuals who are daca would be more politically involved and it's kind of a struggle because obviously there's um barriers like if you're not born in the US or if you're not a citizen you can't run for exposition and i wish it would change that because like i said like a lot of people have for daca have grown up in the US and are themselves american consider themselves american and so why not have this opportunity to voice our ourselves politically and to change you know what's happening and that's probably because the US doesn't want us to be in charge obviously but yeah i wish i wish we would change that and have more before daca being in politics for sure and also just a huge thing like if you're daca a lot of the time you actually don't qualify for what is it called when the government gives you financial like aid um public assistance um so a lot of daca individuals actually they don't they still don't qualify for public assistance like i think my sister was telling me she can apply for um it's either leak or snap the snap that they give you for money because of her status i think it was barely changed that we could apply for um, unemployment so stuff like that that we should be able to get like we're that happy access to and people kind of forget that and we're back i hope you enjoyed this interview again we interviewed alondra a, a already graduate from college um I felt like this interview was really good especially because it talks about her experience being an undocumented student but also being like someone who attended a PWI and how also that experience kind of impacted I guess the person she is and and kind of like how important it is to also uplift first generation students experience just because it's very unique to themselves but also other people But yeah, in general, I really hope you enjoyed this segment. Again, this is College 101, a first-gen guide, and I am your host Melissa, and be sure to check out other parts of this series. College 101. A first-gen guide. And that's the conclusion of our program. Brought to you by the fine folks at Oh, not you again. No. And y'all who let her back in? <laughs> And that's a wrap. We hope you enjoyed whatever it is you just heard, heartwarming interviews, tear-jerking stories, magnificent music, and the sound of our voices. Cuz God knows that this is the best content on the airwaves. Don't forget to follow Yolo on all their social medias at Yolocali. And you can find all our audio content on SoundCloud, MixCloud, and Apple Podcasts. We bougie like that. Well, that's it. Bye. See you next Saturday from 12 to 2 p.m. for another episode of What's Up? What's Up? What's up?